Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Unchained. All right. Well, around A.D. 60, the Apostle Paul, the prisoner of the Roman Empire, he finally made it to Rome. And so after a very long and difficult sea voyage, you know the story from last week, the ship that he was on docked in the Italian town of Puteoli. And so from that town, Paul and his companions, along with Julius, the Roman centurion, they began their final leg to Rome, the final leg of their journey. And so if you look at your map as they headed to Rome, word spread throughout the Christian community Hey, the Apostle Paul is coming to our city. And they were so excited. And you say, why? Because a few years earlier, the Apostle Paul had written Romans, a life-changing letter. It touched their hearts. And now they had the chance to meet the man whom the Lord had used to impact their lives. And so as, if you look on your map, some of the Christians in Rome, they traveled 30 miles from Rome down to three taverns in order to meet Paul. Other Christians pressed down 43 miles because some Christians uh, will go further than some Christians, but they pressed down 43 miles from Rome all the way to the Appius Forum in order to meet Paul. And when Paul, ladies and gentlemen, approached these destinations as he's heading up to Rome and he saw all the Christians it says in verse 15 in your Bible that he thanked God and he took courage. I can see Paul, as I said last week, elbowing his dear friend Luke, the author of Acts, and saying, Luke, look at what God has been doing in Rome. We've never even been here. And look, the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not changed, chained. Look at what God is doing. And of course, hello, everybody. Now, after meeting his friends, I want you to picture it in your mind, Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, Julius, the centurion, these Christians from the community of Rome all joined together. They're heading northwest up to Rome together, walking on the famous Appian Way that I'm sure you've heard about in history. And I wonder, as they're making this walk, did they sing together? Did they pray together? Did they ask Paul a million and one questions about the letter that he had written to, him, to, to them? The book of Romans, but somewhere between AD 56 and 58. Hey, Paul, can you talk more about faith in Christ alone for salvation? Can you talk about the imputed righteousness of Christ? Can you talk about justification, sanctification, glorification. Can you talk about God's plan for Israel in the future? I bet you, man, they just kept asking question after question after question as they walked to Rome. Now, when they finally got to the city, they entered a very large city with a population at that time of about 2 million people. 2 million people, half of which were, were uh, slaves. And so one million slaves in and around Rome around AD 60. And so Paul, you need to know, had a very compelling message for all the slaves, both in Rome and across the Roman Empire, which we read about in the book of Galatians. And so it says in Galatians chapter three, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew or Greek, 
Now, here it is. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so in Roman culture in that day, slaves were looked down upon by the upper class, the aristocracy. You know, the attitude was, well, we're up here and you're down there. So long as you just stay in your place, everything um, will be fine. But you need to know, church family, the Christian message was and is different. All right, so what's the Christian message on the bottom of your screen? It is that all humans have been made in God's image, therefore we all have equal value. And when it comes to all Christians, we've been saved by grace, and therefore we really need to be humble. And so never forget this, that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. I don't care what your ethnicity, I don't care what your social status is, I don't care what your gender is, there is no, we're up here and you're down there. Rather, our message is we are all equal in value before our creator. And so regarding all humans, God made us in his image. Therefore, in terms of intrinsic value, we are all absolutely priceless. We're made in the image of God. And regarding all Christians, none of us have been saved by our merit. We all have been saved by grace. Therefore, we all should be humble. All right, and so who's arrived? Nobody has arrived. As Christians, we have got to stand against all forms of racism, hatred, pride, and bigotry wherever it's found, either in the culture or in the church. We've got to take a stand against that nonsense. Paul's message And by the way, God's message in the Bible is slavery is sin. And Paul's message to to the Roman Empire that had millions of slaves was this. God loves the slave as much as he loves the free man. And he loves the poor guy as much as he loves the emperor. And everybody, everybody needs to be born again by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's dig in to the final verses of the book of Acts. I hope right now you're looking at a Bible, either electronically or like one I'm holding here. And I hope right now you're looking at Acts chapter 28, verse 16. And it says, Luke writing, and when we came into Rome, so Luke walks into Rome with Paul. Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And so during this first Roman imprisonment, while Paul is waiting to stand trial before Caesar, he's under house arrest in a home that he paid for. Can you believe that? I had forgotten that. And by the way, if you wonder where that is, it's in verse 30. If you wanna cheat, look ahead really quick. In verse 30, it says that Paul lived there in a rented house two whole years at his own expense. And he welcomed all who came to him. And so why was Paul allowed to stay in a house? And why wasn't he thrown in a dungeon somewhere? Well, I believe it was because Festus, the Roman governor of Judea, 
He never formally charged, as far as we know, he never formally charged Paul with anything. And so the Romans decided to treat this uncondemned Roman citizen named Paul in a civil manner. Now, don't misunderstand me. Living in this rented house wasn't easy. The soldiers who guarded Paul in either four or six hour shifts, and so they're in a rented house, Paul is there, and there's Roman soldiers who are guarding him in shifts, and ladies and gentlemen, they're chained to him. From Paul's right wrist to that Roman soldier, he's chained constantly. And so wherever the soldier went, Paul went. Can you imagine for two years? You know, the Roman soldier wakes up, Hey, it's time to wake up. Let's go. Hey, it's time to eat, Paul. Let's go. Hey, it's time to go to the market, Paul. Let's go. Hey, I got to relieve myself, Paul. Let's go. I hope the chain was really long, right? And so it wasn't fun to be chained to a Roman soldier for two years. But the good news was this. Whenever Paul felt led to share the gospel, he had a captive audience. The guy was always there. And he had to hear about Jesus. Now, while he was under house arrest, Paul was allowed to have guests. And guess who he wanted to see first? Let me give you a hint. If you've been with us in our study of Acts, during all his missionary journeys, whenever Paul arrived in a city, where did he always go first? Right. He always went to the synagogue. And so you know by now, Romans 9, Romans 10, right? 11, Paul had this huge, huge heart for his countrymen, the Jews. And he wanted nothing more than that the Jews would believe that Jesus was their Messiah. And so it's estimated around AD 60 in Rome at this time that there was 60,000 Jews living in and around the city of Rome. And so you can't fit 60,000 Jews into one rented house. And so what does Paul do? He invites the leaders to come for a visit. And so we pick it up now in verse 17. It says, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, look at this in verse 18, they wished to set me at liberty. They wanted to set me free because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Verse 19, but because the Jews, specifically the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar Though I have no charge to bring against my nation. Guys, I love my nation. I haven't done anything wrong here. Verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you, local leaders of the synagogues in Rome. I, I want to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel is the, the risen Messiah. It is be, because of the hope of Israel that I, am wearing this chain. And so Paul has these local leaders come into his house. He greets them, right? Shalom, shalom, whatever. They all sit down. He wants them to know four things. 
First of all, he wanted them to know that he had not done anything wrong to the Jews. Secondly, he wanted them to know that the Romans wanted to set him free. Thirdly, when the Jews, the Sanhedrin, objected to Paul being set free, he appealed to Caesar. He had no choice. And then number four, he was chained for the hope of Israel. Now, for the Sanhedrin, number four was the big problem. Paul had done nothing wrong to the Jews. The Romans knew it. The Romans wanted to set him free. The Jews objected. Why? Because their problem was Paul's message that Jesus was the hope of Israel, that Jesus was the Messiah, and that Jesus proved that he was the hope of Israel, the Messiah, by rising from the dead. And so let's see how the Jewish leaders responded now in verse 21. It says, and they said to him, well, we haven't received any letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. And so try to get the picture here. The Jewish religious leaders in Rome, they said, Paul, we haven't gotten any reports about you from Jerusalem. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that apparently the Sanhedrin decided to drop their case against the apostle Paul, to stop pursuing their case against him. So why? And all we can do is surmise, right? But I think that maybe they decided if the Roman governor, Festus, declared that he thought Paul was innocent, then the Sanhedrin probably thought, well, then the Roman emperor, Nero, probably also is going to say that Paul is innocent. And so in the Sanhedrin's minds, why spend all the time and money and resources in going from Jerusalem all the way across the world to Rome, the world at that time, from Jerusalem all the way to Rome and pursue this case if we're just going to be embarrassed before Caesar. No, no, no. Their chance to nail Paul to the wall was in Judea, where the Jewish Sanhedrin had a lot of clout, a lot of political clout. Not in Rome, where they hardly had any influence at all. And so apparently... They decided to drop their case because there's no word about Paul given to the Jewish religious leaders in Rome. All right, so look at verse 22. They're still talking to Paul in the rented house. And they said, but we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to this sect. Okay, those are the, the sect is the Christian sect known in the first century. I know you know this as the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so because Jesus said that in John 14, 6, followers of Jesus were part of the sect called the way. And so they're saying to Paul here now in verse 22, um, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is, it is spoken against. And so there's a church in Rome. There's been a church in Rome probably for 30 years now. And so the, the Jewish religious leaders, the heads of the synagogues in Rome, 
they were very much aware of the sect called the way. They, they knew all about Christianity and they knew that it was criticized by, by many people. Nonetheless, they've gotten to know Paul now, his Jewish credentials, and they want to know, hey, what are your views about this sect? Well, let's find out. Look at verse 23. It says, when they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. Okay, so even more Jewish religious leaders from Rome are coming to this rented house, meaning the rented house must be pretty big here. And look at this. From morning till evening. Do you guys see that in verse 23? From morning till evening. They just give me 40 minutes here. I don't, I don't know what the problem is. But from morning till evening, he expounded to them. He expounded to them from the word of God. He didn't give some little motivational message about how to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. No, no, no. Paul took the Bible and it says from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of self, the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. What did Paul do all day long? Here it is, it's on the bottom of your screen. Paul used the Old Testament scriptures to prove that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. He went to the Hebrew scriptures, we call it the Old Testament, and all day long, he proved to them, or tried to prove to them, that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised Messiah. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't hear anything else, please hear this. God wants us to know who the Messiah is. See, so do you know what he did? He placed in the Old Testament hundreds, not a few, no, he placed in the Old Testament hundreds of prophecies and types about the identity of the coming Messiah. And guess who is the only person in history to fulfill all of those types and all of those prophecies? His name is Jesus. Why don't you shout out his name right now in your living room? Right? Who cares what anybody thinks? This is our Lord, our Savior, our God who came from heaven to earth to die for us and rise again so we could live forever with him. Jesus. That's what Paul's main theme was in this house all day long. All right, and so the Old Testament said the Messiah would crush the head of the serpent and that was fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus through his death and through his resurrection. The Old Testament said that through Abraham's seed, the Messiah, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And guess what? That prophecy was fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus through his universal offer of salvation. The Old Testament said that the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah and the line of David. That was fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus who was and who was called the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise be to the son of David, right? 
The Old Testament said the Messiah would be born of a virgin and be born in the little town of Bethlehem. Well, guess what? That was also fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus. We just sang about it. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning of the creation of the material universe, the word Logos already existed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jump down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal God, Christ, left heaven, and he added a human nature to his already eternally divine nature. And Jesus Christ became a human being in the womb of Mary. One person, two distinct natures, 100% God, 100% man, distinct natures. It's, they're not mixed. They're not diluted. One person, two natures. It's the hypostatic union. It's the Jesus of the Bible. It's the only Jesus who can save. And Paul decided this is what I'm gonna talk about with these Jewish religious leaders all day long. The Old Testament said the Messiah would enter Galilee. Can you believe that? In the Old Testament. He's gonna enter Galilee and the people who walked in darkness are gonna see a great light. That was fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus who had an amazing ministry in Galilee. The Old Testament said the Messiah will present himself 483 prophetic years, 173,880 days after the command to restore and build Jerusalem. And guess what? Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the exact day prophesied by Daniel. The Old Testament said the Messiah, the king, is going to ride into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. That was fulfilled by Jesus. The Old Testament said the Messiah will be spat on, wounded, that he would be pierced, and that his garments would be gambled for. And that was fulfilled in the, New, in the New Testament by the way the unbelieving Jews and Romans treated our Lord Jesus. The Old Testament said that the Messiah will bear the sins of many, that he will be executed. Ladies and gentlemen, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures says the Messiah will die. And that, of course, was fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus. The Old Testament said he'll be buried in a rich man's grave. That was fulfilled by Jesus. The Old Testament said he'll rise from the dead. He'll ascend into heaven. That was fulfilled by Jesus. I could go on and on and on. I don't have all day long. I could go on and on, but for the sake of time, I'll just refer you to Got Questions. One of my, have you noticed, favorite websites in all the world, gotquestions.org. How many prophecies did Jesus fulfill? In that article, they list over 100. I think it's 103 prophecies, not including types. But over 100 prophecies, all of which were fulfilled in history by Jesus. What are the odds? What are the odds that one man would fulfill over 100 Old Testament prophecies? Well, let me ask you this. What are the odds that one man would fulfill just eight prophecies? The late Peter Stoner, professor emeritus of science at Westmont College, along with 600 of his students, they calculated the probability 
of one man in a single lifetime fulfilling just eight of the primary prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. After their calculation, they discovered that the probability, again, what's the probability of one man in a single lifetime fulfilling just eight of the primary prophecies in the Old Testament about who the Messiah will be? The chances are one chance in 10 to the 17th power. One chance in 10 with 17 zeros behind it. I shared this, I think, like five years ago, but the, the illustration that Dr. Stoner gave was, imagine if you fill up the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, and then you take one silver dollar and you mark it with a black X, you get in a plane, you fly over Texas, and at some point you just throw that marked silver dollar out the window and it goes and it falls somewhere in Texas, and then let's say some, somehow they mix all those silver dollars up, and then you blindfold one person, and you tell them, all right, start walking, walk through Texas, and whenever you think you know where that silver dollar is, that marked silver dollar, you reach down and you grab that thing. What are the chances that somebody would find that marked silver dollar in a state filled with silver dollars two feet deep. It's the same chance, ladies and gentlemen, that one man in a single lifetime could fulfill just eight of the primary prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. In other words, it's mathematically impossible that the Messiah is anybody else than Jesus of Nazareth. The question is, have you surrendered your life to him? Are you living for him? Are you following him? Or are you just wasting your life living for yourself? You know what I know? We're gonna meet him someday. And I hope to God that you've been saved by grace. And so from morning till evening, Paul expounded the word. Let's find out how the Jewish religious leaders responded. Now in verse 24, it says, and some were convinced, praise God, right? Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Can you imagine sitting under the teaching of the apostle Paul all day long as he teaches the word and you still harden your heart? Praise God, some believed, so sad, some rejected the message. Verse 25, after disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Okay, so Paul's gonna get the last word in here. He says, hey guys, and he's talking about the ones who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, and now he's gonna quote Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And look at this. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And God says, I would heal them. And Paul 
quotes that to these guys as they're walking out. And one final, final word in verse 28, he says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And that's exactly what happened in history, even though most Jews, not all, remember James in Jerusalem, thousands of Jews come to Jesus as Messiah and Jews all over the Roman Empire accepted Jesus as their Messiah. But sadly, most Jews in the first century rejected Jesus as their Messiah, especially the Sanhedrin, not all the Sanhedrin, remember Nicodemus, but the Sanhedrin rejects Jesus as their Messiah. And so the good news is that the Gentiles receive the Christian message. Yay, right? That's probably why we're here today, 2,000 years later. Gentiles received the Christian message. Churches were planted all over the Roman Empire. And then after the Roman Empire continued to be spread all around the world. That's the good news. The bad news is that in AD 70, about 10 years from where we are right now in our Bible, the great Jewish revolt occurred. Actually, it was AD 66 to AD 70. The Jews rebelled against the Roman Empire. And you know the story. Rome said, "Uh uh-uh. And they attacked Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the Jewish temple. And about one million Jews died in the great Jewish revolt. You can Google it later. I think Josephus said 1.1 million Jews died during the great Jewish revolt. And later in history, the rest were scattered across the world. Somebody says, well, does that mean God is done with Israel? He's done with the Jews? Well, let me ask you a question. Is God a promise keeper or a promise breaker? Can a righteous God break the Abrahamic covenant? Can a righteous God break the Davidic covenant? Can a righteous God break the new covenant? all of which were promised to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Of course, the answer is no. And Paul said this about the subject in Romans 11. He said, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God's program of saving Gentiles like most of us. And in this way, here it is, All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Praise God. All right. And so that that passage right there is proof positive that God is not finished with Israel. After almost 1,900 years of wandering and being scattered around the world, on May 14, 1948, Israel once again became a nation. And right now, over 6.5 million Jews live within its borders. That has never happened to any country in the history of the world, which is why the modern state of Israel is actually a modern-day miracle. Bible prophecy, ladies and gentlemen, is unfolding in our time. The stage is now set for the second coming of Jesus Christ. We don't know when, I don't set dates, but I know it's getting 
close. And so after the program of the Lord to save the Gentiles is complete, Paul said, all Israel will be saved. And that will take place at the second coming of Christ when the Messiah will rescue Israel from her enemies. And when the Jews look up and they see it's Jesus, it was Jesus all along, he's our Messiah. And they put their faith in him. He's gonna take away their sins and he's gonna set up his Davidic kingdom in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, which should not be interpreted allegorically, but literally. And he will reign over Israel and the world for 1,000 years literal and glorious years. So in his book, Target Israel, Ed Henson, who just spoke here at the end of February, along with Tim LaHaye said this, and I quote, God promised Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation in the promised land and that through him, meaning his seed, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. That global blessing is realized through Abraham's descendant, Jesus, Messiah, Savior of all people. God has a plan for his covenant people and that will be fulfilled during the kingdom age, which will then be followed by a new heavens and a new earth. By the way, Revelation 19, second coming. Revelation 20, millennial kingdom. Revelation 21 and 22, a new heavens and a new earth. It all chronologically fits. Verse 30, can you believe this? We're down to the last two verses of the book of Acts. It says Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense. I don't know, maybe he's making tents on the side. I don't know, maybe he's, you know, uh, tapping into some provision given to him earlier. I have no idea. But he pays rent for two years and he welcomed all who came to him, verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And by the way, can that please be our main focus, especially this year, especially around um, November, Um, especially around, is it like, I think November 4th. Um, Can our main focus, please, church, be the kingdom of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without Hindrance. And so while under house arrest, Paul shared the gospel without hindrance. And so there you see it. Even though Paul was chained, the gospel remained unchained. I love this. And so, as I said before, Paul was chained to a Roman uh, soldier. So he had a captive audience. But what was the result of Paul's witness to these soldiers that watched him in four to six hour shifts? What was the result? Well, during this time, he wrote to the Philippians. He's under house arrest two years. He writes to the Philippians. You've read it. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served, here it is, to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so the gospel went from Paul to the soldiers that were chained to him to the whole imperial guard, the the elite force that that watched over Caesar, his bodyguards, you know, like the guys with the black suits. All right, Caesar, he made it into his palace. 
the eagle has landed. I repeat, you know, those guys, these, these guys who could kill you with their bare hands easily, probably in two seconds, the gospel gets to them. And what was the result of the imperial guard getting the gospel? Well, later in the book of Philippians, Paul wrote, all the saints greet you, especially those of, look at this, Caesar's household. And so the gospel went from Paul to the Roman soldiers chained to him, to the whole imperial guard, and even went into Caesar's household. And all I gotta say about that is like, wow, wow. Hey, Paul might be chained, but God's word's not chained. And we also know that while he was under house arrest for these two years, Paul wrote uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and I wish I had time to get into it, about a slave. But he also wrote to a guy named Philemon regarding his slave. Now, think about this. How many billions, with a B, of believers over the last 2,000 years have been spiritually blessed and impacted by just those four letters? Again, even though Paul was chained, the word of God was not and so I got to give you the rest of the story, right? What happened after Acts chapter 28? Well, eventually, Paul did stand before Caesar Nero himself. We know that because the angel promised him in Acts 27, 24, that he would stand before Caesar. And when God says it, that means it happened in history. Now, we have no record of it. We don't have any details about it. Maybe you and I can watch the movie when we get to heaven. But apparently, Paul won his case probably by um, default because the Sanhedrin never showed up and he was acquitted and he was released. Now, most likely after Nero went insane and started to persecute the Christian community a little later from where we are now, Paul was rearrested probably three or four years after Acts 28 and he was brought back to Rome in chains. This time, he was not put under house arrest. This time, he was thrown into a cold, dark, and dreary dungeon, probably chained to a wall. And he waited to be executed for his faith. During Paul's second Roman imprisonment, he wrote one last letter to his young protege, the young pastor Timothy. And I was so glad when I read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Do you know who the only person who was at Paul's side all the way to the end, do you know who was with him to comfort him in that dark, dank dungeon? The author of the book that we just spent a long time on, Luke. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Thank God for friends. You should thank God right now for that friend that you have that's committed to you to stick with you. That's a, that's a beautiful gift from God. And even though Paul was chained in a dungeon, did God's word cease to spread across the Roman Empire even though one of his greatest servants is chained in, the, in a dungeon? Uh, no way. <laughs> Look at what he said to Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, 
the offspring of David, as preached by my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Here it is. But the word of God is not bound. Once again, even though Paul is bound, the word of God is not bound. Even though Paul is chained, the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, is unchained. He knew the end was near. And so finally, Paul wrote this. For I am ready, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. So now I'm looking at 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. And we'll put it at the bottom of your screen. That's 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. Some of the final words of the Apostle Paul. Most likely, he was beheaded in Rome around A.D. 66. But here's what we know. Ladies and gentlemen, the moment that blade came down on the back of the neck of the Apostle Paul, Jesus Christ was there to greet him and to say these words, well done, good and faithful servant. And that, my friends, is the end of the book of Acts. If you are not sure, if you have any doubt at all, whether or not you have been born again, I want to encourage you to go to our website, calvarypsl.com, click on the Knowing Christ box, read it. First of all, before you read it, pray. Pray and ask Jesus Christ to become your righteousness because your self-righteousness will not take you to heaven. Read what it says there. It's not very long. And you turn in faith and repentance to Jesus as your only hope. We love you guys. God bless.